0: The anatomy of a collapse of a big bank and the anatomy of a rescue from the federal government. For the billion-dollar mover that you are, this is not new news. Silicon Valley Bank, which was said to be the epicenter of Silicon Valley tech and small business, collapsed March 10th after a run on the deposits doomed the bank's plans to raise fresh capital. At first, there was major concern that this crash will take the VC and startup ecosystem with it, but the government swooped in, provided a backstop, and scraps of SVB was purchased by First Citizens Bank. Catastrophe averted? Not quite. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank shook a lot of folks and highlighted, namely, that confidence in banks is all relative. Credit Suisse being a case in point. Today's episode is by no means a full breakdown of what happened but answers this one question. Was this truly a black swan event as Nicholas Nassim Taleb explains or is it really a grey rhino? As best-selling author, my friend Michelle Walker writes. And today, we have her on the show exactly to speak to this. How should you be thinking about risk and what next? You don't want to miss it no better time than now to be calling the lady behind the gray rhino and we want to hear all about it but before we get started and get deep into the issue of the moment of svb everything that has unraveled we are recording this march 15th for the historical time stamp on what has unraveled but give our audience a little bit of a sense of who is michelle and what brought you to this work
1: i coined the term gray rhino in 2013 Uh, as a call to take a fresh look at the obvious things. The big scary thing, two tons with a horn pointed at you coming your way. It's gray because if you ask any five-year-old at the zoo what color the rhino is, they'll say, oh, it's gray. But the grown-ups say, oh, it's a black rhino. Oh, it's a white rhino. And that part of the metaphor is to remind us that we're not as good at dealing with obvious things as we'd like to think we are. And that came out of my work in a former life, writing about sovereign debt crisis, particularly in Latin America, but across emerging markets. And then as a Latin America bureau chief at International Financing Review you know, a couple of decades ago, I went into uh, running think tanks and uh, more media management and returned to this question around the time of the Greek debt crisis, asking why is it that some leaders see a big, scary thing coming at them and deal with it? and too many of them don't. So it's really a call to take a fresh look at obvious things. And there's a framework for looking at where people are, where organizations are in dealing with it and looking at some of the reasons why they approach things the way they do or the way they they don't. And uh, so I, I'm seeing all of this sovereign debt financial crisis background come back to life in the worst of ways.
0: Yeah, and uh, that actually brings me uh, straight on to the question that we have. I mean, this has happened before in many different ways, and yet it came as a shock to many. You know, tell us a little bit about what your view is. Well,
1: I think a lot of people did see it coming. Not everyone did. We certainly we didn't know that exactly this was where we would start seeing things go crazy. Um, but with financial crisis and monetary cycles and financial market cycles, business cycles, uh, you just get something very obvious. Something goes up at some point, it's going to come down. And so in that sense, we, we all should have been paying attention to knowing that something was coming. We certainly have seen a lot of blame over having removed some of the bumper rails that we put in place after the 2008 financial crisis, uh, which of course happened because we had removed some of the bumper rails that we put in place after the Great Depression and the Great Crash. So that's one thing that you know, when you learn a lesson from something and you put in some provisions to keep it from happening again, then maybe it's not a good idea to take those away when <laughs> things seem like they're going really well. Uh, we've seen a lot of a lot of criticism of the bank management, uh, you know people were selling selling shares ahead of time, including immediately before, uh, that the bank didn't have a chief risk officer for months and months, you know, just until January for about eight months, uh, that the bank in their proxy filing clearly was very aware of risks. Everybody knew that interest rates were going up. Uh, everybody knows, well, should know at least, that when interest rates go up, it causes a cascade of effects, like people people need more cash, things start slowing down, it becomes harder to roll over debt, and existing securities lose value uh, because the interest rates and uh, and yields move in op- opposite directions. It was one of my first uh, accounting principles that uh, that is super useful. So this dynamic is there. And what's even more important is that in front of us, there's way more to come. This morning, Credit Suisse is all over the headlines. And we're seeing a lot of attention to uh, uh, unrealized losses and depreciation in market securities like the ones that, that Silicon Valley Bank took a loss on. So there's just so many touch points to delve into, but it's really about monetary and financial cycles. And we knew that we saw a huge boom because of the pandemic, because of loose monetary policy. And we know that that has come to an end. And I think people have been a little slow to, to really own up to what's happening. We, we've been, a lot of people have been in denial.
0: I mean, as you talked a little bit about interest rate hikes there and everything that would have had the ripple on effect, you know, this should have been seen coming by the entire community, uh, let alone the, the bankers itself. Why do you think, you know, this unraveled in this way? And what can you tell us about, you know, the b behaviors uh, that switches on to the gray rhino uh, theory that you have here?
1: Well, a lot of traditional risk management is about identifying risks and checking the box that you identified the risk. And I always get questions about, you know, what are the gray rhinos in front of us? And I always have to say look, it works best when you see them in front of you because every situation is different. You know, a gray rhino for one person might be something dangerous and for someone else, it's an opportunity, but it's not just about spotting the risks. It's about responding appropriately. And certainly we saw some of the, the management of Silicon Valley Bank uh, responding by a uh, you know, selling their own shares, which I would not say is an appropriate response. Uh, I think that um, that really risk management in general needs to shift from this identification to response. And there's a lot of debate right now about. Uh, accountability. As we saw after the great financial crisis, people were very, very angry that a lot of the bank executives who were involved in in adding to the crisis weren't necessarily held accountable. We're hearing uh, noise from the government that that's not going to happen this time. Well, you know, we're going to see, but, but gray rhinos are really about not just identifying things, but really evaluating response, evaluating the responses of the people who have the best view of the situation and the most responsibility and the most power to change the situation. And in this case, it certainly includes the bank. It includes uh, regulators. It includes Congress for pulling back some of those uh, those guardrails. Uh, there's a big controversy i think over the role of of the vc firms many of of whom urged their uh, their the people they were funding to keep their money in the bank so all these startups had their money there and also many of them were told to take their money out and uh, so there're lots and lots and lots of people responsible in this. And I think it's a question for individual leaders. It's a question for organizations, certainly for all of the other banks to look at their balance sheets and, and their hedging and what's happening. And also to look at regulators, the bigger policy environment. And one super geeky point uh, around a Silicon Valley Bank is that the issue is with uh, with some securities they were holding to maturity, which meant right. that uh, they, they had some favorable accounting treatment, but it meant that if they were to hedge against interest rate rises, it would have been much, much, much more expensive than if these were held uh, mark to market. That is, you know, they were on their books at the price that they paid instead of the price that they were trading for in the market. This is something I saw again and again and again in sovereign risk that, uh, that many banks had government debt on their banks at, you know, no risk and, you know, not marched down. And that helped to prolong the reckoning with the crisis because it made it more expensive than it should have been to, uh, you know, to work out some of those debt problems.
0: It was truly a pretty remarkable week with three banks, right? From Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and now there are questions about the other quote-unquote more regional banks and specialty banks. And yet, you know, what we're, we're seeing with startups figuring out where to go and, you know, the first thought is maybe I should go to the big banks. It feels like, you know, we're, we're playing another game where back in the day, if you remember the demise of Lehman and all that, people were getting their money out of the big banks. And now we're doing the opposite. What What is your thought process here as you're looking at how everyone is sort of uh, behaving?
1: Well, this question of what's uh, too big to fail or not is uh, is quite interesting because there was some debate over whether Silicon Valley Bank itself was uh, a systemic risk or not. And we're starting to see that systemic risk can appear in places where maybe you didn't expect it. Uh, the other thing is about uh, Silvergate is that you know it's, it's a crypto issue and people forget that uh, they were looking to put their money into Signature Bank, another crypto area. And crypto is so fascinating because for so long, people have been asking me, is is crypto a gray rhino? And I said, well, it depends on the the point of view. I mean, for a lot of people mm-hmm. in crypto, the gray rhino is that that you know central bank central monetary authority has has lost control isn't as reliable as it used to be and you know obviously that's an issue but then on the other side you know central banks have been saying okay well this is a further threat to us this is instability there are the fomo investors who were saying oh well if we don't put our money in this then we're going to be left behind that was how they saw the gray rhino and then there were the people who said you know anytime something goes up that quickly in value watch out and so i think we're going to see a lot more turbulence around crypto, and particularly banks that have big crypto exposures.
0: How do you think we can emerge from this, what I I believe is, is fair enough to say is a crisis?
1: Well, I think there are questions about diversification. Obviously, and and there's, there's lots of marketing theory around that. You know, have a clearly defined market and go after that. In this case, uh, it turned out to be a big problem for Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, I think that in this case, part of that problem was that you had some some big players who were directing uh, their partners there and directing their partners to to leave. So you had this sort of uh, uh, encourage herd mentality. And now you hear that that some of those people told others to take their money out of the bank. Now might become They might be part of a a consortium going in to buy the bank. And that raises all sorts of of moral hazard and conflict of interest uh, questions. Uh, The other part that I don't think gets enough attention in this is that a lot of the people who did have their money there are startups. Uh, You know, I I know some very, very hardworking startup founders who had their money there who were thinking, how am I going to pay payroll? And that, of course, Mm -hmm. affects, you know, employees, affects the the sort of scrimp and scrabble uh, startup founders, not the ones who are just drowning in money. And so there really is a domino effect, a ripple effect throughout the economy. And it raises questions about, you know, who bears the risks. You hear about the, uh, you know, the socialization of losses and the privatization of uh, profit, and I think we need a new conversation about that, particularly about uh, small, smaller businesses who, yes, they can go to the SBA, and in some cases, they've, they've got some uh, lower interest rates. But in many cases, it's much harder for smaller businesses who have huge social benefits and positive externalities to get funds. And then often the bigger, supposedly healthier institutions or investors can borrow for less, even though they pose a much bigger systemic risk. So we really really need a bigger conversation about risk pricing, whether it goes to to you know, moral hazard or to cost of credit, access to credit, to mark to market versus hold to maturity pricing. And a lot of the problems that we're seeing are because risks have been mispriced in the market. When you see
0: Now hold that thought. <laughs> Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform with an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit hubspot.com service to learn more
1: huge monetary bubbles you get people going and and you know chasing risk there're big policy questions there're big business strategy questions and there's also the the creative destruction conversation that there are some organizations that are not going to make it and you need to direct funding to the ones that are more likely to succeed and it's usually in downturns like this when this happens and a lot of the people who get crushed are the the employees, the, the smaller business owners, and we need to look at the sort of safety nets that we have and the ways to make sure that uh, the profits are shared equally, but also that the losses are shared equitably. Uh, from each according to their ability, and to each according to their need.
0: So a lot to go go further there in, in the conversation on how this this can be implemented, and, and you know what the risk mitigation um, tactics that we have to bring into play here. But before we go go to that, I do want to get your thoughts on uh, the gray rhino versus the black swan, right? Uh, in the last couple of years, actually, and I know you you've challenged the black swan theory in being implemented for the COVID nineteen uh, crisis as well. But tell us a little bit more. About you know how you view this and where the black swan comes into play and where Grey Rhino comes into play.
1: Sure. Well, I think the thing I've challenged is really the the abuse of black swan theory. Uh, you know, the black swan was really created as a way to remind ourselves that the world is way more uncertain than we think. You know, the, the black swan is something that European explorers freaked out about because they thought only swans were white and they couldn't even imagine something black. And during the great financial crisis, policymakers, portfolio managers who lost their clients' money, uh, all sorts of people said, oh, black swan, nobody could have seen it coming. When in fact, I had an apartment on the Upper West Side in Manhattan that I bought in 2000. It had almost doubled in value by the time I sold it four years later, because when something doubles in value in four years for no apparent reason other than super loose monetary policy, you know that something is is wrong. And there were lots of warnings. If you go back and do a Google Trends search, all sorts of things, there were many and many high-level warnings. We didn't know exactly how it was going to turn out. Uh, But I think that part of the problem was that there were several obvious issues that fell apart all at once. And you do sometimes get black swans if there are so many known problems that converge at once that amplifies the effect. And the the gray rhino is something that is you see coming. It's often something that's happened before, like a pandemic, like a financial crisis because of monetary and business cycles. My my email box was filled with so many headlines, subject lines saying unprecedented. Well, yeah. it, it, you know, the author of the black swan himself has said that COVID-19 was not a black swan because, you know, he himself had written uh, about pandemics as things that that happened that were a big threat to come in the future again. I wrote about it in uh, in The Gray Rhino. And in fact, my great-grandfather died during the great flu of 1918. So these are things, if something has happened and happens regularly over time, you can't call it a black swan because you can imagine it because you've got a historical record of it and it's coming in front of you. The, the intersection, perhaps, of the concepts is that with gray rhinos, you often have a big outline. You have a rough idea what's going to happen, but you don't know exactly how it's going to un- unfold.
0: So let's get into the gist of things. How do we apply? I mean, and, and part of uh, our connection point is we were actually on a board governance course, right? Thinking about how boards can govern uh, the role board Members have to play in this. Can you share with us a, a framework or you know how you would think about risk mitigation? Such a good
1: question. It's, it's almost, you know, the question for organizations. It's really about how you make decisions, uh, who's making those decisions, what the individual biases are behind the de- the decisions, and how those biases work together in a group, how you can counteract them, how to create the the habits and the processes that help you to make better decisions about not just spotting the gray rhinos in front of you, but dealing with them. And uh, so that has to do a lot with, uh, you know, diversity of uh, of point of view. There was a a much maligned article in the Wall Street Journal that uh, Mm -hmm. said, you know, oh, I'm not, quote unquote, not saying that, you know, 12 white guys would have made a better decision than this gendered balanced board with a, a couple of other groups represented uh, and claimed that there had been too much too much effort represented in trying to make a diverse board. And that's crazy. The research shows you that diverse decision-making groups do a better job. Uh, my work on risk perceptions and risk response shows that having a good balance of risk attitudes, risk tolerances, what I call risk fingerprints, the background that you bring to making those decisions, the the more diversity you have, the more likely you are to be able to have a good structured debate that helps you to reach the right decisions. So there's, there's a psychology part to it that I write about in You Are What You Risk, the sequel to The Gray Rhino. And then The Gray Rhino Framework itself talks about looking at how events are unfolding. Are people in denial? Are they muddling? Which is when they're saying, oh, yeah, we know there's a problem, but here's a thousand reasons why we can't deal with it. The diagnosing, the, okay, what's the problem? How is it related to other problems? How do you prioritize? How fast is it? How big is it? How impactful is it? Who needs to do what to solve the problem? And where are they in their recognition and response cycle? There's panic, which is everyone's running around shouting, do something, do something, anything, just do something. And you're more likely to do something But unless you have the preparation, like a firefighter does, you're also more likely to do the wrong thing. And then there's action, which involves not just doing the thing you've decided on, but tracking to see if it's having the results you want or if there are unintended consequences and tracking as you go along. So it's about analyzing the situation itself, but also what each person, each CEO, each board chair, each director brings to the situation how likely they are to perhaps you know leap before they look or how likely they are to say okay hey let's all just Take a few deep breaths here and let's consider this. Let's consider that. It's really about the decision-making structure and who's part of it and what options are available to you, which includes policy constraints, like, you know, how expensive is it to hedge against certain risks or not? What are the moral hazard consequences if you get uh, rescued?
0: A business person who is not trained in necessarily thinking about risk first, but business first, uh, would almost say, "Ah, oh, man, all these red tape put around me is going to just limit uh, innovation, is going to limit you know, the, the scale of which we can grow the business, especially at a time that uh, what we call bold leadership, courageous leadership, and real skill is needed. How do we balance growth and risk
1: at this time? Well, of course, you need to think about risk as part of growth that there's both the opportunity and the, the danger. And one of the biases that we bring to situations is that some people just see the opportunity and other people just see the danger. So you want to make sure that you're looking at, at both sides because uh, there's always a danger of missing out. And there's the question of what are the right guardrails I mean, there there's some really bad regulation out there, and there's some really bad you know business practice. There are times when there are regulations that don't make sense, or lots of unnecessary paperwork. But the other side is that if you are going to loosen up regulations in some areas, you've got to make sure, very sure that you've got the right safety net, you've got the right backstops, and you've got to make sure that the people who were not responsible for making the bad decisions are protected. And you've got to make sure that you've got the appropriate consequences for people who do make irrational or you know, rational knowing that they're going to be bailed out decisions. But you know, the people who make decisions that ultimately end up causing harm to other people when they they know that they're taking some very big risks and there might be a potentially quite large loss. It's the it's the allowing the constructive risk taking and it's creating the the safety net and the backstop because you know not everything is going to turn out. And if everything does turn out right, then you're probably doing something wrong. You really need the mix, you need the comfort with constructive failure. And you need the accountability.
0: Speaking about accountability, I mean, what we're also seeing, uh, unfortunately, is the politicization of the viewing of risk, interestingly, right? I mean, uh, you turn on <laughs> Fox News, you turn on CNN and CNBC, there are different interpretations of what happened here and the government's role. How do you think this will play out? Wow, I uh, <laughs>
1: don't want to be a bummer. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not liking what I'm. I'm seeing. I also saw a story this week that the most extreme and combative politicians get. I forget if it was four times or eight times or some huge amount more media attention than everybody else. So we're we're paying attention to the wrong things. Uh, another friend asked me, well, why why do you think there is such a battle against against companies that are taking into effect into uh, into account how well the companies they're investing in are dealing with environmental and social and governance risks. And you look back at it, you follow the money, and it's it's often a, a fossil fuels case. It's also a case of a cynical politician saying, "Hey, I, I can rev people up to get them." excited about this so that they don't pay attention to the other stuff that we're doing that is not acceptable. It's a smoke and mirrors sort of situation. And the interesting part is, you'll, you'll see lots of news stories about this too, is that the uh, the people who are not taking into consideration uh, the, the environmental, social and governmental risk uh, environments of companies, they're actually losing out. Because the the investors who do use those screens, which which are not perfect by any means, but are, in principle smart things to do, you know, those ESG funds are more likely to do better. And that companies that do have good governance, good risk architecture are more likely to outperform. And particularly over the long term, uh, because, you know, the other numbers, 75%, 90%, some huge majority of company value is actually in the the long-term assets and particularly in the intangible assets, you know, which includes the the reputation and the brand. And so the companies that are paying attention to those things are going to do much better for investors over the long run. And companies that, for example, have bad bad social policies are much more likely to be skewered in the press and on social media if they stumble, if they do one thing wrong. Uh, Whereas the companies that have got the better social reputations, environmental reputations are more likely to be able to get past hiccup or a stumble because their clients and community have more confidence in them. So these people who are attacking ESG are actually not doing themselves and their constituents any favors. They're they're hurting them on so many levels.
0: And it's kind of scary because more and more we're seeing how important it is, right? There's, you know, there's almost a consensus now that tech and Washington, D.C., you know, venture in Washington, D.C. needs to really work hand in hand even more closely after what we've seen unfold here. And actually a hat tip to Janet Yellen and, and the team that actually responded a lot quicker than you'd expect governments to respond
1: often there's, it's, it's like a balloon, you, know, you push one side and the other side uh, pulls out, is that, yes, there are risks in immediately stepping in to make sure that this situation doesn't get worse, it's very much like the risks of all the money that governments threw at economies because of the pandemic. Uh, and I, I think it was right. I think this really does have the potential to create a lot more uh, bank runs and a lot bigger financial crisis. But then the other part hasn't gotten enough uh, attention. You know, for example, the, the you know, quantitative, quantitative easing and the super easy interest rates have meant that in many cases, it's a better financial bet for a company to buy back their shares. It's a better bet for people to invest in secondary markets than to put money into the real economy, which, you know, frankly, is what venture capital is doing, you know, by by helping to bring up new businesses. That's something that is quite important. And I don't think that that venture capital gets enough credit for it although the people who lionize venture capital also don't take them to task enough for the things that that aren't done well so i think it t- means taking a broader more systemic approach to policies who benefits from this who's hurt what are the potential unintended consequences
0: Precisely the point you brought up. You know, innovation is important, especially at this time. The investments that has been made through venture capital has built a lot of the tools that has helped us in leaps and bounds. And yet, of course, uh, with the market sentiment, there is lingering fear, right? That's building. What What would you say to the investors as they consider the risk, as they consider what has just happened, the chaos that has unfolded right now?
1: Look at how you're responding. Look at how other stakeholders are responding, and realize that responding appropriately is actually a a benefit. I find too often that people are more afraid of being wrong in a group than they are of being right alone. So have that conversation, be open, say things that you might be uncomfortable saying that your colleagues might be uncomfortable hearing and be brutally honest when you are looking at how you're responding and evaluating that and make sure that you are adjusting appropriately. That when you see the gray rhino coming at you, you're not getting trampled, you're not just stepping out of the way, but you are looking at how you can benefit by contributing to solving the problem in front of you to really harness the strength of it uh, instead of getting trampled.
0: Just on your point there on uh, being the lone wolf, right? One of the key issues that we see in venture is the loudest voice often uh, gets funded. And that's the reason why, um, you know, even female founders, those who are deemed to be underestimated don't get the lion's share of capital because they don't fit a pattern of success. Speaking right now to the funds, the venture capital funds and the founders that are building systems within their organization uh, in this new environment, how should they build so that the lone wolf doesn't get, you know, uh, attacked and fired, dismissed? It happens.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you brought up uh, women, women founders, because one of the things I found, and I wrote about this in You Are What You Risk, an interview with Genevieve Tears, the uh, co-founder of SitterCity.com, um, who's raised you know over $50 million in, in, in capital for uh, in Chicago. And she was talking about early on, she had to go to meetings with male VCs, with a man with her, so that they would believe that she would, quote unquote, take enough risk. There are a lot of risk stereotypes about women within VC. When you look at the research, it shows that that women are uh, are actually in many cases better at taking risks than men, that women's startups are tend to, to outperform, um, that they perform similarly on measures of you know, how much debt you take on, how fast you grow, all of that kind of stuff. So one, really be aware of your biases. And there's also some research that says that women are more likely than men to take social risks. That is to be the person who stands up and says the thing that nobody wants to hear. And there's also research correlating that social risk with creativity, with innovation. So that's something you really, really want, whether it is to avoid stepping over the cliff because you weren't paying attention or to climb up the mountain because you're the one who saw the opportunity at the top and nobody else did. And women are a hugely important part of of that system, of, of that equation. So, you know, if you're not investing in women, you are selling yourselves Short, Absolutely.
0: And, and, you know, we talk all about that. It is all the work that I do. Uh, and yet I, I just wonder, you know, as we're, we're going down this uh, road a little bit, uh, why are women deemed to be risk averse and uh, not risk takers in the way that men are? Well, it's
1: interesting. There's there's something called stereotype threat where people sort of absorb the things that people think around them. I've talked to so many hugely successful women who've taken so many risks in their careers and otherwise who come to say, oh, I'm really risk averse. I want to scream because (laughs) it's not the case at all. It's in many cases, there's conditioning that women are expected to describe themselves as risk averse, even though it's not true. Also, risk averse, I actually hate using that word. I'm like, how about risk appropriate, risk astute? You know, risk I used risk aware. Risk, yes. Yes, that's the <laughs> best one. Because you know, the more you're aware of a risk, the more the odds are, the higher the odds are that you're gonna actually respond correctly and, and lower the risk. Um, and, and you know, risk risk appropriate, risk savvy. Uh those are all much. Better words. Risk averse means that you take fewer risks, all things being equal. Well, all things are not equal. I mean, I'm five, three and a half. Please put that half in there. Walking down a dark alley at three in the morning is not the same risk as a, you know, six foot three inch. Guy who weighs twice as much as I do walking down. In many cases, it's not the same risk. There's research that shows that uh, women who fail in a quote unquote gender atypical role are punished way more than men, and that m- women in many cases are punished for success. You know, they're called, you know, bossy or aggressive or whatever, uh, whereas men get praised. So it's not the same set of risks in many cases women face higher risks than men in the same situation in many cases they they make the same choices even though to the outside you know uninformed person they might think oh it's the same risk so first I think everybody needs to pay attention to that and you know I, I get frustrated when everyone puts it all on women's shoulders that they need to do this that or the other to bust stereotypes but uh but that said in a in a workshop recently a woman asked me okay well, what can I do to make sure you know if someone else is not ignoring these stereotypes. How can I make sure that they know? And it goes back to storytelling. You know, think about what are the biggest risks that you have taken? What are the risks that you've taken throughout your life? And do you really think you're risk averse? Like knowing that. So own your risk story and also be able to talk about those with other people.
0: Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia, CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jujitsu living entrepreneur and co-founder of rocketbook he talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a shark tank flop but ended with a 50 million dollar exit you know that's our jam listen to it talking too loud wherever you get your podcast. Michelle. Well, uh, that leads me to my quick fire session called Billion Dollar Moves, where you say the first thing that comes to mind. And the first one that I had designed for you as we wrap up here is what is the biggest risk that Michelle Walker has taken?
1: <laughs> it, was a, it was a risk early in my career, right after graduate school, when I was an analyst uh, for uh, IFR on Latin America and uh, had some health problems because I was just you know working myself sick literally and I had to choose whether to stay there or whether to jump off into the great unknown and write my first book went to the Dominican Republic and, and Haiti and wrote my first uh, my first book and in hindsight I realized that the risk that I took was not the biggest risk in that situation, even though it looks like it to other people. The biggest risk was staying someplace where I wasn't fulfilling my potential and that I felt like I would just end up getting sick again so I wouldn't have career or health.
0: Love it. Uh, What would you tell your younger self?
1: Don't let other people define for you what's quote unquote safe and what's quote unquote Mm. risky. You know, make sure that you know your purpose. When you know your purpose, risk takes on a completely different shade. When you know your purpose, risking that purpose becomes a thing that you don't want to do no matter what anyone else tells you about what's safe or not.
0: And finally, the last one would be, what would your legacy be?
1: My legacy uh, would be mm-hmm. that I think that, you know, that, that people really think uh, more deeply uh, about what they're doing, that they actually consider risk openly. I, I've read, unfortunately, after I finished You, Are what you Risk, that we apparently take 35,000 risks or make 35,000 choices, give or take, every day. Every single one of those choices is a risk. Every risk is a choice, but we don't think explicitly about risk and why we take the risks that we do. You know how what we had for lunch or the temperature of the room or what day of the week or whether we had Tylenol that day is affecting the choices that we make. And how can we possibly make so many choices without understanding what goes into them? So if people can be a little more, a lot more self-aware about that, that's what I like to be my legacy. Love it.
0: Great. Well, Michelle, where can we find you? Where can we uh, find out more about your theory, your framework,
1: your book? So go to thegrayrhino.com. Gray with an A, although the E will also get you there. You can read more about events, the events framework in The Gray Rhino, and you can read a lot more about risk psychology and motivations in You Are What You Risk, which just came out in paperback a few weeks ago.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Best-selling author, uh, the queen of risk thinking and risk frameworks that we need to be listening to right now. Michelle, thank you so much for your time and for making your version of Billion Dollar Moves. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.